I'm Martin Reeves, chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sandra Sacher, who is a professor of management at Harvard Business School, where she teaches a course called The Moral Leader, and more generally, teaches leadership and ethics. Before that, she's familiar with the world of business. She's been a senior executive at Fidelity Investments, and before that, in fashion retailing. So she's seen both sides of the equation, academia and practice. And she's just written a wonderful new book called The Power of Trust, How Companies Build It, Lose It, and Regain It, which was published just a few days ago in July 2021. So welcome, Sandra. Thank you. Thanks so much. So trust is one of those things we think we understand, but it's a little bit slippery to define it. How do you define trust? I define trust as a relationship of vulnerability. So we usually think of trust as that positive glue that holds us all together. And in fact, a trusting relationship is one in which we are vulnerable to other people's, other organizations' ability to make good on the things we're counting on them to do and their intentions towards us. So we're vulnerable to their actions and intentions. Yeah, something a little paradoxical about that, isn't it? Because when we say something's trustworthy, we sort of imply that it's a sure bet, but it's characterized actually by the opposite of that, by being a vulnerability in a state of sort of asymmetric power or information. Absolutely. And I think that part of how companies and organizations get it wrong is not, I mean, there's a difference between being disappointed and being betrayed, right? So, you know, if you don't do what I count on you to do in a sort of a general sense, I'm disappointed. But if you violate my trust, I'm betrayed. And so it's a very much more emotional reaction and it sits in kind of a moral domain as well as a domain of action. So the title of the book uses another word, power, the power of trust. So trust is obviously a value, but again, it's a little bit slippery to say, how does it create value? So what is the the value or the power of trust? Trust creates positive outcomes. So there's a study of 30 NCAA basketball teams in the United States. Uh, What they found is that the team with the most trust in the coach won the most games in the championship, for that matter. The team with the least trust won only 10% of its games. And so it really matters. It matters in business, too. There is a study at Holiday Inn of 6,500 employees, and they were asked to rate managers on different dimensions. The most important one turned out to be trust. And an increase in trust of like an eighth of a point on a five-point scale yielded $250,000 more in revenue. What is the opposite of trust? Is it, is it transactionalism? What do we do when we don't trust? So are you asking when we don't trust or when we have trusted and it's failed? When we don't trust, when we choose not to trust, what do we do instead that is more costly than trusting? Trust is costly. What we tend to do is to default to limited expectations and to a sense that we can't really count on the company. So we tend to not have the same loyalty toward it. And we tend to back away from times when we're vulnerable if we can. So it's a perennial topic, and I'm, I was wondering while I was reading your book why you wrote it now. Is it just fortuitous timing that it's a perennial topic and you decided to write about it? Or is there some special reason, something that's changing or something that's misunderstood that was the prompt to write the book? The origin story for this book is I was in Japan researching a company called Recruit Holdings Limited, fabulous tech company. And I learned when I was there that they had surmounted a scandal that was so great that the prime minister of Japan and his entire cabinet had to 
resign from their post. It's written up in textbooks in Japan. If you ask people about recruit, the first thing they'll say is scandal. And so to me, it was like, well, how can they be a $20 billion corporation with 50,000 people around the world and have survived some kind of a scandal like this? So this just created this question. There must be a myth around lost trust cannot be regained. So that was what started me down this hunt in particular. I see. And is the trust environment changing, do you think? Because, I mean, the Bible mentions trust, trust in God and suppress your anxieties. I can't remember the exact words, but, you know, it's, it's a very ancient concept. You know, I imagine that technology and other things change the equation somehow. What's, what's new in the environment of trust? So I'd say quickly, three things are new. One is just what you could think of as like the addressable footprint of what businesses are responsible for. So 10 years ago, if you had to say our business is responsible for diversity, equity, inclusion, how much are they responsible for climate change? There was considerable debate about that. That debate is kind of over. And people now expect companies to do things that they didn't really expect them to do before. Now, technology has shifted the environment because we're so vulnerable to the power of technology companies and all the data that they have on us, future of work, all of those issues sort of come under technology. And I think, honestly, the pandemic has totally juiced this issue because now all of a sudden we've all been vulnerable, right? We've all trusted in various institutions, which have either helped us or let us down. And I think that that has put this issue of trust really front and forward. I'm wondering how does trust change the equation? Because in some ways, technology has solved trust. We now do bizarre things like trust anonymous parties on the internet for single transactions of secondhand goods. It's bizarre that we trust, but technology has solved that problem. But it's also created new problems. Is that just old whiny new bottles or is there something essentially different about the new trust problems of technology? So let me take that question from a somewhat different perspective and quickly tell a story about a company and shows how trust differs from not trusting, right? So the company is Nokia. It's 2011. Nokia is going down (laughs) with respect to its mobile phone business. And they have to manage a restructuring of about 18,000 people. And they blew a restructuring in Bochum, Germany terribly and lost millions of dollars in sales and profit. And they decided not another Bochum. And what they did is they basically bet on trust. They said, if we create a robust program to support you in getting another job, will you stay for the two years that we need you to keep working for us? And what they found is that people did stay. They did build this very robust program. And at the end of it, 60% of 18,000 people in 13 countries around the world knew their next step the day they left the firm. So that's what happens when you build trust. It's that kind of surprising, impossible, this could never have happened uh, if people didn't trust us kind of moment. And so that's the power of trust, is to be able to do things like that. And we have some sort of modern issues around technology and trust, don't we? Sort of trust in data privacy and algorithmic bias and so on. Would you say that these are just different instantiations of pretty much the same universal ideas of trust, or are they fundamentally different in some way, the, the new issues of technology trust? I think that the impact is so great that they almost seem like new issues. So we've always worried about privacy. We've always worried about being discriminated against. But now the fact that those algorithms are driving decisions that determine which goods we get to look at on the internet, 
who it is that markets to us, and how people understand our behavior, that's at a scale that I think puts it in a different category, even though the actual dimensions on which we're trusting are pretty much the same. I like the way that you adopted some very concrete dimensions of of trust. You said that there are four components, competence, motives, means, and impact. Could you decode that a little bit for us? Tell us about what those four dimensions are. Sure. So, So let's think about Uber. So the foundation of trust is competence. If you're not competent, no one's going to do business with you. And Uber basically wrote the book on ride hailing. They created this new model. But if competence were all that mattered, everyone would trust Uber. And we know that that's not true. So then the question is, what else matters? So the first thing that matters is motives. And Uber driver, I'll say this quickly, in 2013, killed a six-year-old girl, ran into a family of four, injured her mother and brother. And when the case came before the court, Uber argued that the driver wasn't really an Uber driver at that time because he didn't have a passenger in the car and he hadn't accepted his next ride. So this is in that moral domain of motives and whose interest Uber cares about. And it offends our sense of what makes sense, what's fair. And so there are other examples of how Uber kind of spells out these issues with respect to fairness. There was one year where Uber asked its drivers to book and cancel 5,000 rides on its competitor in the U.S. Lyft. Now, the name of the game in ride hailing is showing up. And so if I do something like book and cancel thousands of calls, I'm going to disrupt the operation of my competitor. That's not fair. And the last area is impact. And here it gets quite interesting. So in 2017, there was a reliability engineer, a woman, who wrote a blog post about how awful it was to be a woman in tech at Uber. And she described various things. When she started, there were 25% women in her division as engineers. When she left, there were 6%. So companies' actions have impact. They may not have wanted that to happen. Uber, if you ask them, of course, they would say they didn't. But we hold companies accountable for the impact we have. That explanation is very helpful, Sandra. It it actually makes me see how big the trust issue is, because if I take your four dimensions, competence, motives, means, and impact, each one has gotten bigger in a sense. So competence, we're doing new things with new technologies. Motives, we're holding people accountable for their motives on more dimensions. Means, corporations are bigger than ever. Can we control our own processes? Do we really know what's going on? An impact, well, impact doesn't appear to just mean the bottom line only anymore. So I can understand your first reply a little better now. Oh, good. (laughs) So I'm wondering, is trust general or, or is it specific? In other words, do I trust you to do a particular thing or do we need to trust corporations more generally? Yeah, so trust is built in specifics, right? So I'm trusting Martin to lead a good interview with Sandra right now that helps people who are listening to this podcast have a good idea of what it is that this trust thing is all about. And so that's how trust is built. It's built in a specific domain in an interaction where I'm counting on one other person to do something that I need them to do. And that's really important and useful for companies because we're not looking for global trust, but we are looking for trust at these moments that matter. We might be looking, I guess, for trust on unanticipated developments. I mean, I can trust you to show up with a ride-hailing service. But something might happen along the way that I didn't anticipate. And and so presumably it includes the peripheral issues to the central task. I'm wondering whether sometimes ambiguity of what that thing that should be trusted is can be part of the problem. 
an ambiguous contract? So ambiguity is part of managing the multiple interests of stakeholders, right? So it's no longer all I have to pay attention to are my shareholders. And so the world becomes ambiguous when I have to manage conflicting interests of different groups like customers and investors and employees and the public. And so that's why trust is more complex to manage. Uh, and it puts you into this state of ambiguity where you need to have a called a capacity for complexity. So you need to be able to hold multiple perspectives in view simultaneously and not try to just zero in on only one of them. And it's this balancing act that at the company level, we're counting on companies to be able to do. So trust is specific, but I wonder if mistrust is more general. I, I trust you to show up with the right hailing service, but if you don't, maybe I don't trust you on anything at all. Does mistrust work somewhat that way? It does. Actually, trust is different if the breach is competence. I'm sort of willing to give you a pass. You know, it's like everyone has a bad day. If it's a matter of integrity, you know, you said you were going to do one thing, you did another thing, that has an overhang that then affects all of the way that I think about you. I don't think that someone's unethical once. I think that they have a pattern of being unethical, and that tends to be a more lasting judgment than just in the competence domain. So I think executives would generally understand the thrust of what you say, although articulating it has its challenges, as we've discussed. But you've looked at trust in a lot of corporations. What misunderstandings or missteps are, are common amongst executives in relation to trust? I'd say the probably the most damaging one for corporations is to treat trust as reputation management, you know, kind of trust from the outside in. And what happens, something goes bump in the night, there's a problem that occurs, and all of a sudden is what should we say about that? Mm -hmm. Now, that's not actually what people are looking for. <laughs> looking for what you do. Uh, so there's a great story about PwC who manages the Oscar awards. And they made a mistake on one of them and sort of misread one movie for another one. The next morning, they had an apology up that said, we are so sorry, our apologies to X and Y for this mistake. Here's how it happened. One of our people was on a cell phone. And here's what we intend to do in the future. <laughs> we're going to make sure that everyone memorizes the names of all the winners, and we're going to forbid cell phones on the stage. So this is about as good as it gets in the sense of being able to recover from lost trust. And it does have this dimension of needing to be quite specific in what it is that you've done wrong, apologize for it, and then build a plan for going forward. You indeed give a very robust definition of an apology or essential elements of an apology, and you give expression of regret, explanation of what happened, acknowledgement of responsibility, declaration of repentance, offer of repair, <laughs> and request for forgiveness. Have you ever seen such an apology from a corporation? No, I have not. And a good apology has three elements. The researchers found, this is not my research, so they found that the first thing is you do have to apologize. I did something wrong. Here's what it is. You then have to explain why it happened. That can't be a defensive, oh, you misunderstood me. It has to be a real, this is what we did and here's how we understand what we did. And then you have to make an offer of repair. What is it that you're going to fix going forward? So yes, we had a good time writing up those six dimensions in the book because it was terrifying to think that there are all these different ways that you could apologize, but some things actually matter more. And it turns out that the research says that those three elements matter the most.
Yeah, so that's quite thought-provoking. I wonder whether we've ever given such a robust apology to our spouses and partners. It's a, that's quite a demanding uh, definition. I have not, I assure you. <laughs> so trusting corporations, one occasionally reads surveys, and I know you're associated with some of those surveys, you're still on the boards of some of them, and one year tr- trusting corporations is up and the next year it's down. I'm wondering how reliable those surveys are in the sense that if you ask somebody whether they trust or not, you know, I, I can imagine a couple of problems literally interpreting the answer. One of them is, would it be my interest to be truthful about trust? I might trust you, but, you know, I probably wouldn't declare that I implicitly trusted you because that increases my vulnerability. Mm. You know, I wonder whether we, whether we know whether we trust or not, because essentially it's behavioral. We may say that we trust, but we may behave as if we don't. How reliable are these surveys and what's your deeper interpretation of whether trust in corporations is actually increasing or decreasing? The reliability issue is, is sort of what's the question that they're asking? And that's the thing you want to pay the most attention to when you look at these surveys. So a survey that says, do you trust in general, is not going to be very useful. We don't know what that's measuring. I am on the advisory board of the Edelman Trust Barometer and the Trust Institute. And there, their question is, do you trust this institution to do the right thing? So that's much more specific. It's grounded in action and intention. And it's one of the reasons why I support those data, because it looks to me like at least they're asking something that people can answer somewhat more reliably, because it's much more specific. But the numbers bounce around. You know, good news, it's now at 62% trust in companies. Two years ago, it was in the high 50s. And the four institutions that they measure bounce around in different places. So I don't pay that much attention, honestly. It's more the absolute level. So is 60% trust in business a good number? Hell no. If someone came to me in a business and said, good news, you know, people actually trust us 60%. My first reaction is, well, what about the other 40%? 40's huge, right? And so I think, you know, we can celebrate these modest gains, but the real question is, what's the absolute level that's being measured? And what can you conclude about that? Yes. As I was reading a book, I, I went into it with the assumption that trust was unilateral. It, it was the quality of trustworthiness of the person or entity being trusted. And then I realized that the vulnerability makes it bilateral. You have to look at the person who's trusting and the person that's mistrusted. And then I also began to worry or think about whether it was actually more complicated than that, whether it was contextual. We're living in an age of social polarization where it's hard to know what is a fact, and we can't agree on the facts. So I imagine it's possible for corporations to be mistrusted or trusted for spurious reasons. So the information context seems to have an influence too. What's your thought about the dimensionality of trust? Is it unilateral, bilateral, contextual? Yes. (laughs) I think it's bilateral, and it's for sure contextual. The thing about trust, it's in the eye of the beholder. There's no absolute standard for what makes a company or even an individual trustworthy. It depends on what Martin thinks makes someone trustworthy in an organization. So that introduces an element of subjectivity that is just part of dealing with the trust domain, is that you have to accept the fact. And so the same company will be lauded by some people looking at it saying, I love the fact that you spoke up about this political issue. And there are other people who say, what are you doing in politics? You're a business. Right. And so that is to be expected because of this duality and the fact that it's in the eye of the beholder. And that's a a problem I think CEOs worry about because increasing politicization of business has often been framed as taking a stance or not. But as you've just said, you can get into trouble for taking a stance. You can get into trouble for not taking a stance. So I'm 
wondering whether you have any thoughts on how companies can avoid being trapped by spurious mistrust or the, the noisiness of the context, let's say. I think that the consistency really matters. So when Mark Benioff comes off, you know, the, the CEO of Salesforce, and he says that I'm not going to support business in Indiana because of its so-called bathroom rights law that discriminates against transgender people. Mark Benioff has been making moral stance a core element of his business from the time he founded it. And so no one's surprised and people kind of go, oh, okay, that's Mark Benioff doing what he does. I talked to the CEO of Ben & Jerry's, and he told me the same thing. He said, you just have to accept that in this area, you have to say what you think is the right thing to do and take the incoming, right? Because some people are going to like it and other people are. But what matters is that you feel that this is an issue that you should speak up on. And there you need to be pretty full-throated. I think one of the mistakes that companies make is that they try to have it both ways. So I sort of half say, I care about this thing. And that's not going to satisfy anyone. And so I do think that this is a declare your intentions moment. And it's not just what I believe, but it's also what action am I willing to do? As you referred to a, a few minutes ago, um, corporations have gone very sophisticated about rhetorically responding to events, saying the right thing. And the issues that they're talking about are often very complex. So I'm, I'm wondering how consumers actually judge the authenticity of corporations, given this highly polished rhetoric and and also the complexity of the issues. Do we know anything about the psychology of how they make that implicit decision to trust or not? So there's a lot of research, trust research, that's done in the area of brand management, right? Where people say, well, you know, what does it mean to build a trusted brand? And different companies go after this research in different ways. And what they found is that for most people, it matters, and it matters increasingly. There's always the disconnect between what I say matters and what I do. Right. That's just true in research, any of this kind of research. But I think that the thing that this framing of trust reveals is that impact is actually, I think, the most important thing. So you can say anything you want to me, but I'm going to examine your track record. Right. And if the things that you do are consistent and actually follow the good thing that you say you want to make happen, then I'm, I'm on board. But if this is something where I can see a discrepancy between what you say and what you do, that's really ruinous with respect to trust. In a sense, your, your book is a, seems to be some sort of playbook for understanding trust and increasing trust. I mean, one question I had in relation to that is, can we have a playbook for trust? In other words, can we use trust instrumentally? Can we set out to increase trustworthiness? Or is it some sort of oblique goal where it's only by thinking about something else, like the outcomes that we eventually, as an indirect consequence, come to be trusted. So I guess my question is, can we use trust instrumentally? Can we set out to plan to increase trust in a, in a sort of mechanical way? I think that we not just can, I think we need to. Uh, I think becoming trusted is a worthwhile and productive goal for companies. And I think the more trusted they are, the more customers are going to buy their products, more employees are going to want to work there, investors kind of care about what they do increasingly. So I think that setting out to be trusted is actually important. And I think one of the most practical things that any organization can start to do is just to say, how does this decision I'm about to take affect my trust, right? Is this going to make me more trusted and by whom? or less trusted and by whom. And I think that that lens will actually mitigate some of the problems that we see, for example, in disaster recovery, 
where you find most of the playbook has to do with avoiding litigation. And avoiding litigation is important, it's expensive, but it's a different goal from being trusted again. So the oblique goal might be the outcomes of the corporation. If you set out to minimize costs, you might do the wrong thing. Whereas setting out to retain or enhance trust, maybe the more legitimate direct goal, is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I'm saying and better said than I said it, Martin. I guess that relates to problems like climate change and species depletion. It seems to me that these are collective action problems. And you know, climate change, we more or less understand the problem. We, we can even make reasonable predictions using complex models, and we could name the actions that would result in a solution. Of course, we are not carrying out those actions. We're collectively, I guess, implicitly deciding not to do what we know is the right thing to do. Has trust got anything to do with these complex collective action problems? And, and does it perhaps hint at some non-traditional or creative solutions to these massive collective action problems we face? I think that trust is actually can be a useful window. So Michelin at one point needed to close a rubber factory, rubber production plantation in Brazil. And they knew that they could just stop all rubber production. This was in the Amazon rainforest and that that would be good for the environment, but it wouldn't be good for the surrounding community. They could give the land back to the government. Okay, that's something that they could do, but they worried then that this wouldn't be environmentally sound. And what they ended up doing was dividing the land into small plantations that they allowed managers to say, I want to manage that and run that as my business. They kept a research footprint there to study a a leaf blight that was attacking rubber trees. And they helped people develop sustainable farming practices because they were there on the ground. And so these wonderful smaller plantations ended up employing more people. They weren't perfect, and they were smart enough to have the ILO come in and audit them and say, did this thing really work? But that's a good example of how the distance between what we say we want to do about climate, even what we measure in our ESG or sustainability reports, versus the on-the-ground actions that we need to take. But you can close that gap. I mean, to me, it was a great example of someone very minded about the climate doing something concrete. In terms of the object of trust, you talk about organizations. You, you also talk about leaders. And I think, you know, I find the framework, your framework convincing for both. It seems to be a similar phenomenon. But is it exactly the same thing to trust an organization or to trust a leader? And in that context, I was intrigued by your, an idea I hadn't come across before, where, where you talked about originating and joining consent. Right. So John Rawls, the philosopher, American philosopher, this goes back to how you understand what it means to rule, right? to be a leader. And so philosophically, this sits in the realm of political philosophy, and the leadership is the right to rule. And the question is, what gives you that right? And he argued, as did people since the 18th century, that it is the consent of the governed that gives you the right to rule, and that there's no such thing as legitimacy without this consent. He then divided consent into these two moments in time. One is the first time I encounter you, and that's originating consent. And then there's joining consent, which is what happens because leaders are always being scrutinized all the time for every action they take. So it's not like one and done, I'm trusted, good news. It's like, how does today's action yield my trust quotient? And so that was very helpful for us as well. So in a sense, you're saying there are two tests of trust for a leader. One is, how did you get to be a leader? And the other one is, what are you doing as a leader? Correct. Right. I guess we could ask the same thing of a corporation. 
We've mostly spoken in this conversation about joining consent for operations, I guess. What do they do? But if the legal framework for a particular industry or the tax breaks or something were a little iffy, we might also ask the originating question, I guess. So we could apply both concepts. Right. And, and I think that that's a crucial question for startups. How do I get my power to do what I'm going to do? What's the promise I'm making? And that's fraught terrain for people who are trying to start a new business. You tend to overclaim. You have to convince people of things that haven't happened yet. And so that joining moment is actually really crucial. It's why it takes some businesses quite a long time to get off the ground, because people have to consent to be vulnerable to that business, which means to do business with them. So I agree with you. I think that that initiating moment is actually really quite important. So I wish we could go on, but our time's coming to an end. And I wanted to end with a a sort of what to do on Monday morning type of question. So um, supposing that a a listener to this podcast is thinking, well, you know, this is important. I, I want to do two things. I want to see where I stand in relation to trust. And I want to initiate some first moves to to build and reinforce trust. Where would a CEO begin on such an agenda? Well, God bless that CEO for embarking on that agenda. I think with measurement, there are some actual new tools that are coming out. And that is sort of the next domain of trust. It's like, okay, great idea. Now, how do I measure it? Because I need a baseline to understand. I would start with the impact area. And I would say, what are the impacts that I have as judged by the people who are affected? So not what you think you've done, but how the people are affected by your actions, whether it's your employees, your customers, the general public, what do they think? What have you done? And how does that look from their perspective? So that's what I'd start to measure is what impact you actually have and not just your intention. With respect to an agenda, I have been thinking a lot about COVID. And I think that COVID is a moment that requires trust recovery. And so if I were advising a CEO now, I'd have them ask the people who are direct managers to ask the people who work for them three questions. The first question is, how has COVID been for you? We really need to understand the lived experience of COVID of the people who work in our organizations. The second is, how have we done in managing this? Scale of one to five, what have we done well, one not so great. And the third question is, what's the single biggest challenge that you face with respect to COVID and coming back to work and managing your life? And so I worry deeply that people are surveying like mad, but that we're not having the important conversations to understand on what basis people need our support and how we can build trusting relationships because we're listening to them and doing the things that matter. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us today, Sandra. It's been fascinating. I definitely recommend your book to all business people, The Power of Trust, published July the 6th, 2021 by Public Affairs, as I think an issue that is applicable to any business, any leader, any organization. And I found it both conceptually clear and also very practical with the various things that you can measure and do clearly delineated. So thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks so much. 